0: And welcome to episode 36 of cultural capital i'm andy hazel
1: i'm eloise ross
0: and standing in for regular co-host Anders furs is editor and founder of the asian cinema focused website filmed in ether it's hugh chow hello everyone hey, hugh Chi,
1: thanks for hugh thanks for joining us thanks
0: Thank you very much for stepping in. Um, Hugh is joining us for this episode because we're discussing the film Bad Genius, and we'll have a quick look at Southeast Asian cinema as it stands in Australia at the moment. We'll also be looking at the British Film Festival and focusing on one of the key titles, which is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. But first, Bad Genius. Not to what Puny prayer's bad genius is ostensibly a drama about straight- A student Lin, who is in the opening scenes is admitted to a prestigious school. Lin is from a lower class family and she soon discovers that the school charges tea money and teachers leak exam papers for bribes. Lynn is going to have to become practical with her ethics if she's going to make it. When she sees her father trying to find money for her tuition, she's encouraged by her new best friend Grace and her extremely attractive but not-too-bright boyfriend Pat to develop a system in which she can relay answers to them during exams, and anyone else willing to pay. As the film progresses, the stakes grow. Hugh, did Bad Genius make the grade for you?
2: (laughs) Bad Genius certainly made the grade for me. I absolutely enjoyed this film, I loved this film um, for so many reasons. For me, I mean, if anyone really kind of knows the type of films that I'm, like, super into, uh, it's usually, I mean, obviously, Asian films, but, uh, but teen films as well. You know, films about young people, basically. I guess here, you know, you've obviously mixed in a genre that's usually quite, like, I mean, with adult characters, obviously, um, and then mixed into a high school setting, and I think that combination really lends itself to a lot of uh, interesting uh, scenarios, as the, uh, the film kind of uh, shows us. Um, and even beyond that, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff that the film does that I really enjoyed in terms of, I guess, some of the characters that you kind of see through here. Um, I really think actually the character of Bank is mm-hmm. quite interesting. And Lynn obviously has a great arc um, all the way through as well. So yeah, I think the character work there was, was really quite interesting as well. And there's definitely a lot of uh, commentary involved as well. For me, as someone who kind of works in international education um, as my day job, you know you kind of see these scenarios play out, and you see that you know the need to kind of succeed to the need to to get perfect grades and all these scores and it really plays into the lives of these of these uh, students It's really no surprise as to why they would go to such lengths um, I think so um, much mm.
1: pressure from all you know parents from the principal from the school network mm-hmm. um, to achieve yeah mm,
2: yeah, and it's all of that, and it's uh you know, a better life uh, promised in, uh, in academia outside of their, um, of their Thai schools. Mm. Yeah, I thought a lot of that, I guess, kind of came through uh, a lot for me as well. I, I saw that and I thought, okay, that's, that's really interesting that they've kind of done that. Um, I really
1: like that you talk about this, um, you know, it being about um, young people, you know, this kind of dual hybrid genre where it's about these Thai students, but it's also very much... Uh, And it's about the education system, but very much about young people learning and like learning to be adults and figuring out how to navigate themselves in the world. It's really interesting and gives the film a lot more dimension, I think, because in the opening few moments, and I do feel like maybe I would have had more fun with this film if it had played out this way, but it would have absolutely been a different film. So it's not really fair for me to go into it with this perspective, but it almost set up as though it was going to be, this like really intense thriller kind of horror, like playing with the evil child trope mm. where Lynn was someone who I thought it was interesting at the start, you kind of, there was a moment where you thought maybe she's not actually a straight A student. She's just lying. She's cheating. You know, there's she's that working the system where you can think like, Oh, she doesn't actually know what to do in this exam situation. So she doesn't actually have any intelligence on her own. And that was really interesting. And I thought, Oh, is this going to be that she's in fact been cheating to get into this, position but after that after kind of setting it up and using that genre set up to introduce Lynn it kind of shifts into this really interesting moral territory which Mm. I thought was very good yeah Um, Mm. and then played around it I mean it kind of returned to those thriller tropes a bit later um as well here and there but yeah I think it was really great in kind of using this narrative to to explore a whole lot of different narrative and genre tropes
0: yeah, I found it really interesting film. Um, the, I mean, it has been hugely successful in Thailand. It's the biggest film of the year there, and it looks like it's going to be probably getting a remake in America. It's already opened quite strongly over there, so I'm not I'm not really surprised because it does seem to be something that people, everybody, can empathise with. I mean, it's become the movie Ali's wedding is also about getting the you know really good school marks. There's, it's become a, a trope in other um, American films as well, but I think here it's really used as a really fascinating way to examine the ethics of somebody who's always been good and has been told. You need to be really good. And she is, you know, really smart. But then she's forced to become like. Kind of ingenious, like the techniques that they develop for passing the answers in exams, are brilliant. I, know, I mean, so, yeah. so smart. Incredible. I mean, yeah, can't just believe
2: flicking the rubber and everything. Oh
0: well, there's that. Yeah, but then the yeah the other stuff. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it actually gets adopted in real life and becomes a problem. Oh
1: my
2: gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Can you it's imagine like
1: choreographed? Yeah. Oh like yeah. Using yeah. The, the idea of the piano and music um, and you know learning through classical music in order to, to cheat on an exam. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite sure about the whether it, like, like it was a bit soapy which is fine because it kind of suits the territory mm. but um, also when it came to, for there to be some sort of like bigger emotional depth it wasn't really that concerned you know, I suppose like the dad ended up being the one moral yeah the sco- kind terrorist. of the
2: moral compass the person to kind of ground uh, Lynn I suppose and uh, and yeah but I I don't know. I, I feel like, um, I thought the acting was, 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 was quite good actually. Um, it was quite strong. And for just such young, uh, for actors as well. Um, I think the character, of, uh, sorry, the, um, the actress that plays Lynn, I, I think that's her first major kind of acting role. And I thought she, she kind of did quite well, so but...
0: Does anyone want to try and say her name? Oh <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I I've got it in front of me and I'm not going to try.
2: <laughs> mm. But to that end as well, uh, I guess in terms of um, acting performances, uh, when the film inevitably shifts to the Australian end of things, kind of questionable, I thought, as to why they would use foreign characters who are quite... Just overacting. Yeah that know? was an interesting yeah. mix yeah. And, and some French uh, Some French guy Kind of involved there yeah, as well Yeah I think there was yeah. like
1: A Dutch accent I yeah. got And several American I only heard one Australian yeah. accent I think in that oh, whole yeah, that's true scene. I don't know whether that's because It is a big international exam that's And true. that that's the, You know it's a whole network mm. Where employees are placed At different locations mm-hmm. But yeah I mean that's not really explained mm. Is it mm. um, In terms of the acting I thought it was very good Lynn was, was great I actually really liked the kind of her two bad friends. The couple, The couple, Grace and Pat. And Pat, yeah. I mean, I think that they were painted a bit broadly across the scope of the entire film, all of the characters. There was something about it that I really loved. I do think that when Grace and Pat become the enemies to Lynn's moral recognition, that's a little bit flawed or a little bit quick, I think. But I thought that Grace and Pat did it really, really well. They're just so they just really, really having a great time, basically. They yeah. just really want to succeed and they, they think that they can and they really love Lynn as a friend. And then they, um, the way that they portray that kind of like pure happiness of just succeeding when it's something that has been so foreign to them mm. for their whole lives clearly is, is played really well. And you can see why there might be people that kind of do whatever they say because they want it so badly. Yeah,
2: mm. And I love that line towards the end as well where – despite how much they want to try and you know actually succeed in this uh, that uh, university once you're doing your exams there there's no multiple choice yeah so you guys are in your own after that i so. know and
1: their faces drop i yeah. know you can
2: see it yeah they're like what foreign education so different what what's this
1: oh my yeah. gosh
0: um, some of the attention before I even st- saw the film, like was going to, was drawn a bit out because I was under the impression that a lot of successful Thai films will have to be checked and censored. Mm. Like there has to be a certain moral code mm. that comes with being a film that is okay by the board. Because I know it was a, a bunch of other films have been censored to various degrees. Mm. Um, is that a problem, do, like with other films, like from Thailand or places in Southeast Asia where there is that sort of censorship?
2: Uh, not. To my knowledge, unfortunately, my, uh, my my area of expertise in Thai cinema um isn't as uh, as, as as deep. At least in, in the context of this film, um, you know, in terms of the moral grey areas yeah, that yeah. kinda come with uh, with cheating and to succeeding. I think uh, they skirt a really interesting line there. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I can't really elaborate. I thought
1: there was a very, very strong moral message and resolution in this film, even too much. Mm. I would say. Mm. I mean, the way that all of the characters kind of reach their point of resolution and then the pressure the pressure that is put on Lynn to do good and then the reversal of that or the, kind of the inversion of that pressure to to do other things that she's not comfortable doing is very interesting. So we do have her as this kind of her behaviour is, is really key. It's interesting to see her. I wrote this line down because I kind of thought it was a bit obvious, but earlier in the film she says even if you don't cheat life cheats you anyway so yeah. you may as well like play into it and play the game that yeah. everyone's playing yeah. that arc was very well played I thought mm, yeah I um, but there were some lines like that particular one that I read out that were I thought they were a bit too much but maybe that's what I mean I don't know maybe that's what um, a lot of Thai cinema is like in terms of having to toe that line mm. or perhaps it's just because it was played more to, to t- the teen soapy kind of yeah. audience
2: yeah no. Just back to what you were saying there, um, Andy, about how this film is. Uh, so it's it's actually been confirmed that it's it's getting a, an American review? Uh,
0: no, it's just like very very likely. A, a bunch okay. of reviews I've read have been like mm-hmm. it's inevitable. <laughs> yeah, it really does seem inevitable.
2: And I would say, um, as as much fun as I had watching this movie, for me the downside is that I know that it's not going to get it's going to get remade, and to what degree it'll get remade, I'm not too sure. But I think uh, in remaking it, you you do lose a little bit of that commentary that kind of comes through. And especially if the, I don't know if it's an American, if it's going to be an American remake or anything mm. like that. Mm. But yeah, uh, nice You know, America has made this movie before. Actually, <laughs> um, have you guys heard of um, that movie, um, The Perfect Score, by any chance? No. No.
1: I feel like I have, but um, I can't can't recall it. So.
2: It stars um, pre Avengers uh, Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson. Really? Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And it's uh, it's basically I think it was made in two thousand four something like that. And so, some, some several other um, names as well. I think Erica Christensen. Um, but, uh, yeah, The It Girl 2004. And, yeah, uh, they, they, they did a similar movie, essentially a, a, a more of a heist movie in the sense that they gather this crew of teenagers who trying to cheat the system to get the SAT scores that they need. It's, uh, it wasn't as well received, I don't mm, think. So, okay. yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, if, uh, yeah, how they do it this time around, if they do remake it.
0: Yeah, and I imagine I would make it a little shorter. This was two hours, nine minutes. Yeah, Um,
1: yeah. I did feel the time. Did you feel the the time? Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I did feel like maybe it was just because quite a lot of the lines were on the nose and a few of the um, set-ups, the plot point set-ups were a bit obvious, like when she um, hears that American guy on the phone and then realises that there are different time zones in the world, (laughs) Um, like that kind of thing. Some of those were a little bit clunky. Mm. So I think I did feel the time a little. I don't like to say that a film should be longer or shorter than what it is because... You know, it is what it is. Um,
0: mm. Yeah, although that's good. not t- too long for a Southeast Asian film, from what I gather. Uh-huh. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> we were talking about yes, we Labdi as really. Yes, yes Labdi mm-hmm.
0: as a perfect example. Um, so overall, you're a big fan? Uh,
2: yeah, huge fan. For everything from, I guess, uh, you know, this being a teen film and mixing these uh, genres all together. So even just small stuff, like yeah, some of the visuals there, you know, you see kind of Lynn, uh, her image kind of being reflected, like each time all the way down. And I just think that that kind of reiterates, you know, anyone could be Lynn, basically. Yeah, and yeah. anyone could kind of, you know, want to succeed.
1: I love that you mentioned that mirror image of her, because it occurs twice, you know, that first run yeah, and then kind of then midway through. Yeah. Again, when she's at the bottom of the escalator. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Really
2: Several, I think it's uh, played every time when there's like a crossroads. Yeah. Yeah, there, but uh, but even so, it just looks awesome, like that's their opening frame, and it's like,
1: yeah, oh, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm.
2: Mm. Mm. so yeah, just all that kind of stuff, you know, just small things like that just really appeal to me. And again, I just had like heaps of fun watching mm. this film, probably one of the most fun that I've had with a 2017 release. Probably. Wow, right, yeah, yeah, cool.
0: yeah.
1: that's okay. great, that's a big recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so it's, yeah, it's, it's on now,
0: it is, yes, out now. Since we've got you here, I thought this would be a good chance to talk about one of our blind spots, which is Southeast Asian cinema, and it seems to be something about which you know through your website, Filmed in Ether. Since we've seen kind of embarrassingly few, I was hoping that you could give us a bit of a guide and our listeners who are probably similarly um, guilty of seeing not enough Southeast Asian films. So if you could give us like an overview of like what sort of pressures are, is there much money there? Is there a particular tendency or themes that you notice are repeatedly explored in films from this part of the world?
2: Well, I will say that uh, as far as Southeast Asian cinema goes, I feel like it's, uh, it's really in an emerging cinema uh, scene, just like whole region, all those countries are really developing some interesting, crazy films. Obviously, when we think of, uh, I guess, the wider Asian cinema... Most people tend to think of genre films, obviously. Um, so, you know, out of Indonesia, you do have films like The Raid, for yeah. example. But then, you know, you also have your festival films coming through as well. So I think um, MIFF especially, Melbourne International Film Festival, has done a really great job of trying to, I guess, shed light more on Southeast Asian cinema um, with uh, their Indonesian Shorts program this year mm, and last yeah. year with their um, Southeast Asian Shorts program. Just showing that there's a, there's a lot more out there than just the genre. Films. Yeah,
0: so do you think it's more of a problem that we haven't seen more because of distribution rather than production?
2: I definitely think it's a, it's a distribution problem. I do think, you know, we, and by we, I mean probably Australia, <laughs> I could do a much better job of uh, trying to incorporate uh, cinema from the Southeast here, um, just because, you know, we are located there. i oh, sorry, we are located in the region. They're pretty much our neighbours um, for the most part. And we live with so many of them as well um, that it's kind of a shame that, you know, these stories don't necessarily get told. And when they do get told, at least, and this is from, I guess, my perspective, when you do see them, um, they are documentaries mostly about, I guess, impoverished areas or just kind of reinforcing these same themes that we don't see over and over again. And there's so much more to that we're not seeing and that festivals might not be showing or anything like that. So...
1: I'm sure there's I mean we do get a bit in the festival circuit but mm. other than that you know you know even short releases like Bad Genius mm. which has a, a limited release we don't see many of those so I'm yeah. sure that there are more stories that we're not seeing and that's a big shame
2: mm. so uh, with Bad Genius I think the distributor for that is CineAsia, Asia, right? Um, or China Line was it? Asia, and they have done a really great job of um, distributing East Asian films, obviously um, from China and even Korea now. Um, so it's good to see that they've uh, you know moved also into small releases for you know Bad Genius in Thailand and a few Vietnamese releases I think over the years. But even then, it's uh, it's it's hard to say sometimes what will succeed, what won't succeed. Bad Genius, I feel like what you see in the film is basically, you know, okay, it's a, it's kind of a blockbuster. It's kind of very appealing and you kind of see those ingredients there. So you, you, you know, for sure, but I guess for other releases, it's it's quite hard to say. Mm, So yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting, because also usually the best chance is at Myth when they're competing against several hundred other films and it's difficult to know because yeah. like, you often you won't be familiar with the, the, the director or exactly. the stars or whatever because mm-hmm. they don't get the same sort of priority out here in, in the industry along, alongside other cultures of films.
2: Knowing that there's a, there's a diversity of films out there, that there's a diversity of voices out there, it always helps, obviously, to, to kind of know what the cinematic landscape really kind of looks like. Um, and that's not even just for like you know Southeast Asian film that's for like all filmmakers everywhere really um, how much are we really seeing how much are we really how much do we actually know about um, in these areas so yeah I mean as great it is to have those genre films those high octane films as you say there's more that can be done to try and spotlight some of these other films that are coming through um,
0: Yeah. Okay. are there any key directors you think we should look out for
2: Joko Anwar from Indonesia he's a pretty interesting filmmaker um, he's quite versatile in that he's, you know, there's no real genre that pigeonholes him. Um, and I think his latest film, Satan's Slaves, just like, just that name alone, right? Good like, name. Yeah. And I think it's just so striking. And the trailer for it actually looks really atmospheric and really great. Um, and that's a remake of a classic Indonesian film. Right. So mm. that'll be interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, Joko Anwar, I'd say, is a pretty interesting filmmaker. Bu Jun Feng as well from, uh, from Singapore. He's an interesting filmmaker as well. Anthony Chen from Singapore also. Mm-hmm. Some people will probably be familiar with um, Tran Anh Hung. He's from France. He's Vietnamese, obviously, but he's made a lot of great films for, v- uh, for Vietnam as well.
0: I'm just trying to capture like different... You'll be, meet, you'll be hearing more about him when we talk about our favourite Southeast Asian films no, yeah. later on, actually. Um, so I thought it would be good to just like single out one film and talk about that and how, uh, maybe recommend that to people who aren't across Southeast Asian cinema as well as you are, for example. Hugh, so can I start with you by finding out what film you thought uh, would, was a really good example of what's happening in Southeast Asian cinema or your particular personal favourite? Sure.
2: Um, I think, uh, I, well, for, I guess, one of my personal favourites uh, of in that uh, kind of area is uh, is Last Life in the Universe. Um, it's a 2003 film. It stars Tadanobu Osano, who m- most people might know as, you know, Ichi the Killer and, uh, and you know, all these other great Japanese films as well. And um, it's essentially this really dreamy film uh, about these two individuals who, you know, there's a tragic circumstance that forces them to retreat from their, from their lives in, in, in Bangkok. And they kind of go on this, uh, it's, it's a really slow melodic film, but it's, it's really beautiful in the way that it's captured. I saw a comment, someone saying something along the, line, along the lines of, oh, this is basically, you know, lost in translation, but for adults. Yeah, I right. thought, okay, that's that's, <laughs> an, that's an interesting takeaway. Um, but it's really dreamy, really ethereal. It just ponders uh, about, you know, loneliness and, exi- and existence and life and all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, that one was made in 2003, but well worth checking out. I think uh, yeah, as right. far as... As far as an Australian distributor, are they used to? I don't know if they exist anymore, but Accent.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm. Um. They they used to distribute that film on DVD. So yeah.
0: Cool. Okay. Thank you. So last life in last the, life in the universe. Cool. Thank you. Mm.
1: Sounds like my kind of movie. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Ethereal um, loneliness. <laughs> Sounds good. Mm.
0: For sure. Um. Elo, do you have a single favorite Southeast Asian film?
1: Uh. My favorite that I just cannot get. Away from is blissfully yours, a 2002 film by a pitcher pong worst ethical. It's a Thai film about Min, uh, an illegal Burmese immigrant living in Thailand. I mean, it's not really about anything. <laughs> so basically, it it opens and it closes without ceremony. Sort of just opens in the middle of a scene in the middle of a doctor's office and then closes without really finishing up anywhere. So nothing really, really happens. It just focuses on this short period of time in this man's life um, and he's living in Thailand with his girlfriend. Um, there's another woman who sort of comes along. But it's just this really beautiful... I mean, I love this style and this pace of cinema and I feel like it's something that you see a lot of in Thailand. I mean, where Sethical particularly does a lot of this in his films, his most recent film, Cemetery of Splendour, mm. was a good example, although it was perhaps a little bit more narrative-driven, I think people would would tend to agree. It's a very slow, slowly-paced cinema that just focuses on landscape and sounds and this idea of being in a state of existence, even a state of bliss with the world living out like... I don't know, at one with the world rather than actually being driven by any force or, or exterior motivation. And so I just love this kind of cinema. And I think you see a lot of it, but Blissfully Yours, I could watch over and over again.
0: Yeah, great. Um, for this one, I was thinking there were a lot of films I've seen that I really liked that were made by people not from Southeast Asia in Southeast Asia. Like The Act of Killing, I think is an amazing documentary, mm. but also it feels like an outsider's view. An outsider telling a story Or like Emil Colton Wilson's Ruin Which we reviewed on Episode 14 Of Cultural Capital Is another beautiful
1: Have you seen that here? No I've
2: not
0: Yeah that's Captures It was one know, of my
1: favourites From from the last Couple of years
0: Yeah Yeah nonpen Pen It's set in Non Pen And tells the story Of these young Cambodians Okay I have to choose A voice from Southeast Asia So I went with uh, Tran An Hung's uh, Vertical Ray of the Sun From 2000 Which I thought Was a, a astonishingly Beautiful poetic Have you you've seen this film I imagine? I've, that's the only one oh, yeah, of <laughs> That I've not
2: seen I've seen Literally every other film except for that one.
0: No, because it's so poetic and it has this really strange version of Hanoi, which is almost like a fairy tale version where it's it's not crowded. It's no You hardly hear any traffic sounds or see any cars. There's lots of close-ups of these three sisters talking about their relationships and you get to know them very carefully and organically And the film is bookended by a, um, a ceremony for a deceased parent And then there's another one for the other parent a month, a month later But within that month you get this f- amazing Just the way he views characters and It's so gentle and the colours are so striking It's also a really interesting mix of nature sounds in the city mm. So you're just outside of frame you're hearing all these insects and birds And this kind of wilderness Even though you know, you're meant to be in the middle of Hanoi it explores relationships in a really interesting way. There's three sisters. One, the youngest one, is has this almost this kind of emotional incestuous relationship with her twin brother. It's never physical, but she fantasizes about them people thinking they're a couple and this sort of stuff. And the middle sister has, is married to a guy who's obsessed with taking photos of plants, and he has a secret wife on an island in Halong Bay where he's doing this research for these photographs. The oldest sister uh, is married to a guy with writer's block who really, really wants to write a movie that ends abruptly. (laughs) And so there's all this... It's actually a lot of comedy in there, but it's very gentle. It's kind of between Tran and the viewer rather than between the characters. And that kind of goes... And it gives you this warmth and this openness and this welcoming quality to it, which... Often people think, oh, you know, there's a lot of Southeast Asian films that are really slow or they're long or they just want to tell the stories about people or families or whatever. But actually, the way that he draws you in specifically, I think, is really, really beautiful in this film. That's
1: <laughs> great. I just want to give one more shout out, if I may, to another film called By the Time It Gets Dark by oh, yes. Anoka uh, Suachika Pong. Sorry, I pronounced <laughs> that terribly. Um, but that was screened at MIF this year, I think, this kind of mystical yeah. feature like really slow relief study of life in Bangkok. Mm. Um, really beautiful as well. And I don't know if that has, it hasn't had a release, Not, um, no. even a small release in Melbourne, but hopefully it will get some more exposure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I just actually saw that film very recently, and I wish more films ended the same way that that did in terms of just like just having static and just breaking
0: up. It was a really interesting film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm. yeah. Cool. Was there anything else you wanted to add?
1: No. That cool. was that was really interesting. Mm. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> really great yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> into, into that, um, you know, the background of Bad Genius and where where that all comes from. So.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you mm. for having me. <laughs> Hark that funky beat, it's the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Open your calendar app, think up some excuses and book some of these offerings. The Fem & Ist Festival is running at ACME from November 22nd to 26th where you can, unsurprisingly, sample the latest offerings from feminist filmmakers like Beck Cole who will be screening and talking about her film Here I Am, which runs as part of the festival's Aboriginal Feminism section. Other sections include Women in War Zones, Gender Futurism and Gender Queer Romance. Elsewhere, the Jewish Film Festival is running at Melbourne's Classic and Lido cinemas until November 22nd. Highlights include Bombshell, The Heidi Lamar Story, and People That Are Not Me. Over at Astor, there's a Catherine Hepburn double bill on Sunday the 12th of November, The Philadelphia Story and Woman of the Year. Before Sunrise and Before Sunset are playing back-to-back on Thursday the 16th, before a 40th anniversary screening of Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Friday the 17th. Back at Acme, the Funeral Parade of Roses is screening until the 19th, and Raoul Peck's I'm Not Your Negro until the 8th of November. Shirley Temple's classic Heidi is celebrating its 80th, 80th birthday with a short screening which runs for, until the 26th of November. Finally, the British Film Festival is running until November 15th. Eloise, what have you caught there?
1: So we went to see Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, Paul McGeegan's film. Which opens with a classic star biopic portrait scene a performer applying her makeup, eyelashes, wig in a dressing room, her image reflected in a mirror at the dresser, framed by lights. It's all subdued and glamorous until suddenly, drinking a champagne glass full of milk, Annette Benning's Gloria Graham collapses on the floor, flattened. The credits roll. From here, the film strips back the glamorous mask of stardom as Graham slowly deteriorates in a modest Liverpool council house with the family of her former lover, Peter Turner. The film flashes back to 1978 when the pair meet and then jumps back and forth between Graham's last few days and her and Peter's relationship. The film is based on a memoir written by Turner of his years spent in a relationship with Gloria Graham. Turner is played as a man in his late 20s by Jamie Bell, who has great chemistry with Annette Bening. The supporting cast includes Vanessa Redgrave and Julie Walters. Andy, what do you think?
0: Well, this is a really interesting film. First of all, it's a really unusual choice for a biopic because you would imagine there would be a lot of stories about film stars um, you know, before, during, after their fame. And so for this one to have this particular poignancy and to be rendered quite so strikingly by Jamie Bell and Annette Bening particularly, I thought was really interesting. It evokes that era of the early 80s, late 70s really nicely and really simply. It's not an overdose of hazy fantasy and, you know, the Charles and Dyer's wedding and all the sort of stuff that was, you know, John Lennon's death doesn't even get a look in. All that sort of stuff that was happening around that sort of time. It basically just keeps honing it back to this relationship between the two. And occasionally, you know, you get Julie Walters, who's the matriarch of uh, Peter Turner's house, his mother. And there's a lot of emotion wrought out of this. And so it really does feel like it is it's adapted from the story by Peter Turner. Um, you get a lot of his point of view. There's this really interesting high prioritization of his emotional experience, which uh, is great because obviously Gloria Graham is an enigma. There's a lot you're never going to know about her. There's a lot of gossip and stuff. There's a, you know, a huge amount in, on podcasts like uh, You Must Remember This where they spent a long time examining her life. Um, because it's very unusual. But all this sort of stuff is just kind of cast aside. It's all about you know, how he responds to her, You know what he finds interesting about her. The fantastic dance scene where they break down some, some British taboos to so get to know each other quite quickly. That was a great scene. It was a fantastic scene. And if you're going to get Jamie Bill in the film, get his shirt off, get him dancing. You can't lose. Yeah. You're the next door guy, right? Which makes you the girl next door. I need a partner for my dance class. If I make you a drink, can you come into my room and hustle with me? If you fix me a drink, I'll come in and clean your bathroom. <laughs> so, is this like a date? You look beautiful. That's Gloria Graham.
1: Big name in black and white films.
0: a star she was. I recognise that pal. <laughs> Won an Oscar too. If you know films like The Big Heat or In a Lonely Place or Naked Alibi, you might get more out of this, I think. But as it stands, I thought it was a pretty good film.
1: What do you mean get more out of it?
0: Well, you might have more invested in her as a character because, you know, she's fairly unlikable. She's got a wall up. She's not that forthcoming. She doesn't want to reminisce. She kind of... Is interested in what she can get out of certain situations and that sort of...
1: Right. Interesting that you say it in that way, you know, that she has a wall up, which she definitely does. And from what I know of Gloria Graham, she is uh, constantly... or at least seems to have been throughout her life very much in denial about any wrongs that she might have committed. When she's dying, she's in denial about having cancer. Um, she doesn't want to accept it. She doesn't want to think about how to kind of approach a cure because that would mean admitting that there was a, a fear of death. Exactly, yeah. And so that she does have this wall up is really interesting. The fact that we experience everything through Peter's emotional turmoil is very interesting from that perspective but I think also does pay tribute to Gloria Graham by not disrespecting her memory by giving her all of these false emotions or dreams that aren't proven or or aren't known for instance Um, and so I think that's really interesting but I don't necessarily think that she's an unlikable character I mean maybe that's just how we describe people who don't own their emotions. Um. Yeah,
0: possibly. I mean, she doesn't, yeah, I suppose, you know, she's charming and she's very interesting, but at the same time, she is going through an enormously, you know, Is part of the story, a huge emotional turmoil. Like, you know, she's mm. facing death, you know, she's declining in her years. She's yeah, in yeah. a very awkward situation where she doesn't feel comfortable. She's yeah. got, you know, difficult relationships with her family. For various reasons.
1: That's all very true. I wouldn't I would never have said that she was unlikable, but I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean Annette Bening is, is amazing. What I find really interesting as well, on top of that, you know, not being able to kind of access her emotionally, is that Annette Benning is is so famous, right, already. So Gloria Graham has an iconic look. We know what she looks like. It's so strange, and, and a lot of biopics do this. They will have one very famous, recognizable person playing another very famous, recognizable person, and at first for me it was difficult to forget about Annette Bening and think about Gloria Graham, but I did begin to forget about Annette Bening right, and, and yeah. accept her as being this older Gloria Graham, and that was a very kind of good achievement for the film to to do in that period of time, one hundred and f- uh, uh, sorry, an hour and forty minutes for a film to achieve that. I mean, I'm thinking, and I didn't like Feud, but I'm thinking about the TV series Feud that screened earlier this year in that same kind of way where it took me quite some time to forget about um, Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang and think about yeah. them as Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, whereas that was achieved much quicker in this film, of course, because of, you know, perhaps seeing her via Peter Turner's eyes. That might have been yeah. why that was.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, Annette Benning does this wonderful job of drawing you in, I think, despite whatever frostiness or there needs to be this emotional protection, I think, that's going on because she is so fragile and she's in such a difficult place. Yeah. So there are some very key revelations that come later in the film that are done by with a camera silently observing her undertaking these actions. Because I, I was taking notes, going, "This is this. I'm not getting enough of her. Like this is all about him." And and he's not somebody who is initially quite so interesting. He's kind of you know in awe of her as everybody else is. And it, it is funny it, also the very little that we get to see of Vanessa Redgrave is basically there for a bit of you know Hollywood backstory. When you get the Nicholas Ray, then you get a quick by of Nicholas Ray from another character you know which is good you know and that sort of stuff is really interesting but also it's not the focal point
1: yeah and it was great because as you say so much of her life has been subject to damaging gossip that basically killed her career gave her you know a lot of emotional stress all of that the the talk about her so the fact that the film brought those things up but didn't dwell on them i thought was very good you know a a really nice thing to do obviously yeah there are still things around that that try and damage her reputation even posthumously so the fact that this film didn't do that was was great i also wanted to just talk about the style the editing of this film i thought it was really really excellent really well done very much supported the whole mood there was a lot of Rear projection, particularly when they're in California and they're driving a- along the beach, um, and you can definitely tell that it's this projected backdrop, evoking you know this false Hollywood affect of older films. Yeah. yeah. So, kind of existing on level with with a lot of these films that it was harking back to, um, and I thought that that was really interesting. There were quite a few instances where the camera was in a really narrow room like a narrow room or in a train carriage um, and kind of just really uh, filled the frame very successfully choreographed the movement really really well that particular one after her play where it's in the bar celebrating after and the camera kind of tracks back just really very well done you have this successful portrayal of characters that is supported by I thought a great visual style
0: yes definitely yeah and yeah there There's so many nice little observations Of the era as well Just to keep you Back there
1: Yeah I think um, There were quite a few People in the cinema Who were perhaps From Liverpool I think including The man sitting next to me Because every now and again He would lean to his friend And I think a lot of The establishing shots On their home Their family home He would um, Kind of say Oh look They've got that Or yeah, they've got that Or you know Those cool little pubs mm. um, Two pints 90p yeah. <laughs> yeah Yeah That sort of stuff um, So that was great Um Um, that I think that it did do a really good job of evoking that feeling of being there in this really pared back um, working class Britain, but at the same time having that like Hollywood fantasy of her California and then New York life. Yeah. And it didn't feel as though it was forcing any of those environmental setups. It just all worked really well. The other thing that I just want to mention is, and I'm going to talk about feud again because feud In trying to introduce the history and some of the most iconic roles of its two characters, had Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon kind of remake scenes from their older films, from Betty and Joan's older films. Mm. Um, So we saw them being played out by the characters playing them on screen, whereas this film actually showed clips from Naked Alibi. At the end, it showed Gloria Graham video accepting the Oscar Best Supporting Actress for The Bad and the Beautiful. And I thought that was really great because even though we had Annette Bening playing Gloria Graham in the last years of her life, there was still that paying uh, respect to Gloria Graham in the way that she was when she was famous and for the reason why she kind of achieved fame and all of that and achieved such recognition. And I really appreciated that it kind of included those. Old yeah, yeah I
0: think it would have been wrong not to have that. Yeah, or to have
1: Annette yeah. Bening, you know, playing that scene from Naked Alibi where she yeah. sings. You yeah, know, It would have yeah. just been so, I don't know, not corny, but just... Very strained. Mm. So I love that we still kind of had Peter or Jamie Balla's Peter Turner watching her on screen and then looking to the woman next to him and thinking, yeah. like, oh my god, these are the same people. And perhaps that is what assisted me in coming to terms with them being the same. Yeah, and the it, same it was
0: really nice that they didn't focus on the so what happened, like how did you go from winning an Academy Award to being here? Like yeah. that was no, that was never part of it. Yeah, and but it kind of answered it as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, mm. I think this was a really good film like the music was excellent as well didn't try and achieve too much either I think a lot of biopics try and yeah they're too sweeping whereas this I thought was just very modest Yep. definitely worth
0: for sure so worthwhile that's still screening at the British Film Festival and we suggest you should catch it I also managed to catch up with Death of Stalin which I also highly recommend for anyone who's ever seen anything by like Armando Iannucci such as Veep or The Thick of It or In The Loop
1: great I have not but I am still keen to see it
0: catch it. <laughs> Great. Well, um before we leave, we should mention that we have giveaways. Um thank you for listening this far into the podcast. As a reward, you can now <laughs> enter for the chance to win A double pass to The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is Yorgos Lanthamos' follow-up to his Oscar-nominated hit The Lobster. It stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman and Alicia Silverstone and has finally finished getting acclaim and awards from film festivals far and wide and is about to hit Australian cinemas in limited release from November 15th. So we've got five in-season double passes to give away, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. To enter, email culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com with your name and address and the words Killing of a Sacred Deer in the subject line. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, everyone.